This morning we're taking the second in the series of summer vacations, and this week we're going to cruise the Mediterranean. Anybody here done that? Okay, good. You live to tell about it. That's great. Gail and I, when on our 30th wedding anniversary, we took a cruise that started in Barcelona, where we met with some missionaries and explored the city, fascinating city. And uh, I don't know, three levels below the street level is where the Roman ruins are, and we descended into a place and found there the footprint of an early church, probably second century. Um, and right next to it, there was a, a wine press, so we know that they probably took communion very often there. Uh, but it was interesting to see how early that part of the world had been influenced by the Christian movement. Uh, from there, we went to Rome and, well, we saw Pompeii and a number of other things. But in Rome, it was especially sobering to be in the Colosseum and think about all the bloodshed that had happened there for the sake of the gospel. But then, you know, they told us that the ugliness of the Colosseum now, it was beautiful, but they stripped the, the uh, marble from it and used it in what we know now as the Vatican or St. Peter's Cathedral. It's just a good example of, you know, what happened in Rome, that, the, that the, really the Vatican is built on the blood of the martyrs, and God did a, an amazing thing there. And then we moved on, uh, cruised into Venice, and that was a, a really cool experience because of all the steeples. I mean, the Alps are in the background, but there are just our churches everywhere, and I'm sure Gail's tired of visiting cathedrals with me, but I love to see the architecture and the way they are. Mostly are like museum level now, but there was a time when there was an incredible influence of the Christian movement in Italy and across Europe. Then in Athens, uh, I really wasn't too impressed with the way the Greeks have maintained their treasures, but a moment that was very emotional for me that I didn't even expect was standing on this chunk of rock which has a sign in front of it that says Mars Hill. That's the place where, uh, where the Apostle Paul was so bold as to address the Greeks, a very tough audience, with uh, his message about the unknown God. A great example of using whatever's available to um, evangelize. And then we moved on to Ephesus, which is in uh, Turkey, and stood in one of the amphitheaters where we believe the, isn't she cute? <laughs> where we stood in uh, probably where the Apostle Paul address the crowds, and um, there's some tradition anyway that John, the apostle, my favorite, and maybe even the mother of Jesus were in this city as well. Then we moved on to Constantinople, which is um, modern-day Istanbul, where Asia and Europe come together, and we saw there uh, many, many uh, cathedrals and churches that have been converted to mosques because Constantine first commissioned many. The Christian uh, movement grew there officially as part of Rome, and then uh, eventually it's been changed uh, to predominantly Islam. But even in these buildings, this is Hagia Sophia, one of the great mosques, there are etchings and symbols of uh, Christian symbols everywhere. So we can see that there was an effect. So we, in effect, we watched the birth, the growth, and the decline of the Christian movement as we moved our way across the Mediterranean. I would recommend that to anybody who uh, would ever want to go. We also had a lot of fun and ate a lot of olives. Um, so, um, but this time we're going to take a different kind of cruise. 
This cruise started in a small ship, a little like this one probably, and ended up in the belly of a whale, a big fish. And so I kind of gave it away. We're going to look at the book of Jonah, which is, actually this story is, prob- is shared by um, our Jewish friends and also the Islamic faith um, as part of their inclusion of, of um, their faith story. It's really a, a short book, a quick read, four books or four chapters. First and third chapters tell a story. Second and fourth chapters are interactions that Jonah has with God that kind of tip us off to what his heart was really, what was happening. And um, so it's also known as a satire because the good guys really aren't so good and the bad guys are the ones who are more open to considering what God has for them. Jonah, he's not a good prophet. Uh, he's a guy who, I don't know how he got the title, but because this book is really, it's not written by a prophet like Isaiah with all the you know, messages to us. It's a book about a prophet, so it tells Jonah's story. And Jonah, as we'll see, ends up being the guy who's really running from God and has a chip on his shoulder and a, and a huge grudge against the Ninevites. But then the bad guys, or we, ones we would think to be clueless or anti-God, are the ones that end up really turning their hearts toward God. The sailors, for example, are guys you would think, you know, if you watch the fishing shows, um, they're usually a pretty tough bunch to connect with. Well, before they threw Jonah over, and after they threw Jonah overboard, Um, they turned their hearts toward God. They repented and they praised God. They were in awe of what he did. And then the Ninevites, as we know, bad guys, um, as soon as they heard the message, which is a very short and terse and direct message, they repented and so did the king, the evil king. So in this story, we see a picture of those who we would suspect would be anti-God as really having open hearts uh, to him that we wouldn't have ever imagined. So, we're gonna explore the story a little bit in two parts, this is the first part, and the story begins with God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh with a warning message that if they didn't repent, that within 40 days he would crush them. And Nineveh was known, really known as an evil city, it, uh, fierce enemies of the Israelites. So, Jonah had a reason to not like them. If you can imagine, just to give Jonah a benefit of the doubt here, if you were to be having coffee somewhere and suddenly you got a message from God that said that you should go to Mosul and find the leader of the ISIS group and tell him that if he didn't repent in 40 days that God was gonna crush him and his people. You might do it just so they could be crushed but you probably wouldn't find your way to Mosul. And that's kind of what it was like for Jonah, or I think it might have been that emotional impact, but he'd already made up his mind that he didn't like the Ninevites anyway. So he jumped on a ship, went the wrong direction toward Spain probably, Tarshish, and um, God made a storm happen. I don't know what it is about 
people being able to sleep in the bottom of the boat with the storm going on, but I sure couldn't, but he, he did, he was sleeping. And um, the sailors immediately started looking for a supernatural source. Maybe they were superstitious, I don't know, but it said they were looking for, you know, why is this happening? And they cast lots, and Jonah came up with a short straw, and they asked him, what's up? And he said, oh, I'm a prophet of God, I'm a prophet of the guy who made this sea, and I'm running the other direction. And they're going, what are you thinking? Why are you running the other direction? If he made this, couldn't he, well, how are we going to stop it? And then he suggested that he be thrown overboard. One of the guys, one of the commentators I read said maybe it was his way to get out of going to Nineveh. I'd rather be drowned than go to Nineveh. But anyway, they resisted and eventually threw him overboard. And it says in the scriptures in Jonah 1, uh, 15 to 17, they, the sailors, took Jonah and threw him overboard. Immediately the sea was quieted down. The sailors were impressed, no longer terrified by the sea, but in awe of God. They worshiped God, offered a sacrifice, and made a vow. Then God assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. And there you have it, Jonah and the whale. That's the story that we hear most often. If you really want a good overview of this story with lots of detail, you have to watch the VeggieTale movie, Jonah. <laughs> it's a great summary. I was tipped off to that in my sermon preparation, and I didn't, really wouldn't have had to go on anywhere else. It was really good. So anyway, we have some great friends, uh, Deepak and Simi Dengra, from uh, India, North India, Christian mission. Deepak and Simi, Deepak passed about a year and a half ago, so Simi's on her own with her staff. But they were, uh, they grew up as Sikhs. Now that's part of a Hindu religion, different than, but very committed. They were at this special place, the Golden Temple in Amritsar, served every day there. They were very faithful and devout. Deepak came to Christ, took the message to his, his betrothed wife, Simi, she accepted Christ, and then began the persecution from their family, rejection from business partners and everybody that they knew. And they took it for a while, but then they couldn't take it anymore, and they decided they were going to leave and find Christian community somewhere, so they went to Australia, spent some time there, and then they came to the U.S., again, looking for partnership, but the whole time, God was there saying, I want you to go back to your people in the Punjab region. They don't know Christ. You can tell them about him. They resisted a while. They've told me the story several times with tears. It was hard, but they went back. Their families didn't understand why. Deepak had been disinherited. A lot of things were going on, but they started. And today, 10 years later, 10,000 first-generation believers who will join us in the great reunion because they were faithful. Amen. They received... Amen. They've been persecuted. We've prayed over people there who have been beaten. One man stabbed 11 times for a Bible study, and we prayed that he'd be able to get on his feet and go back out and preach again, and he is. But they followed Christ, and the story's not over yet. So that's an awesome example to us. So what's our takeaway from this one? From the first part of Jonah, no, sorry, 
Jonah, that's Noah and Jonah together, Nona. <laughs> um, what do we gather from that? Well, the first one is, you know, what is your Nineveh? What is it that God has nudged you toward that seems too big or too frightening or too counter you <laughs> to be able to do? Is it a person in your family or in your workplace that is just rock hard against you or the gospel? Maybe he wants you to go to that person. Maybe he wants you to share love with that person. Who is he nudging you toward? Or, or could it be a service, volunteer opportunity? You know, you've heard about orphan care, you've heard about foster care, or you've heard about being a big brother or big sister, and every time it pulls at your heart, but you just haven't taken the step. Or what about a mission project? What about, you know if you go to Mexico, it's just gonna, it's gonna tear your heart out to see how those people live and to be with those children. But maybe God wants to squeeze your heart a little bit. Maybe he's pulling you that direction. Or maybe it's just, maybe it's a donation. Maybe it has to do with your checkbook. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to write a check that you just haven't been able to write, but every time you hear about it, you think, oh, what's your Nineveh? Where is God prompting you? to go that you haven't gone yet. Part two, we've decided to call Jonah and the worm. Uh, a little known fact is that God commissioned a worm to do his work and to teach a prophet a lesson. Um, so Jonah writes this nice poem to God in the belly of the whale. He never really apologizes, but he does say, I know that you're the one that can get me out of this, and if you will, I'll do your will. So Jonah finds himself on the shore, probably not smelling very well, uh, but he went forward to Nineveh. Nineveh was a city, they say, that it took three days to walk across, probably walking slowly. But um, he walked one day in and gave his, uh, his prophecy that was, in 40 days you'll be destroyed. Now, in Hebrew, that's only five words, and it wasn't very convincing. He didn't try very hard because he had a chip on his shoulder. He didn't really want to be there, and he didn't like the Ninevites. But he did say that, and to everybody's surprise, the Ninevites listened, and they started to repent. And the king got the word, and the king issued a decree. The evil king issued a decree that everyone should fast, wear sackcloth, pour ashes over their heads, and even the animals, according to the story, repented too, and God liked it. And um, in Jonah 3.10, it says, When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Jonah didn't like that. He was very upset. Jonah said, so he complained to the Lord about it. I didn't say, didn't I say before I left that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You, get, you are eager to turn your back from destroying the people. So here is the prophet of the Lord saying, I can't believe you saved those people. 
That's why I didn't want to come here, because I knew you would. You go, what kind of a, what's the story here? Um, he showed his cards and then tromped off to a ridge. By the way, in the Veggie Tales, the ridge is really cool, where he sits up over the city and waits. And then um, God does a nice thing. He makes a tree grow with shade. Jonah liked that. He felt like he was in God's favor for a moment. But then the worm got to do his job and killed the tree. The tree withered, and Jonah and God sent a, a blistering heat to teach Jonah a lesson. And Jonah showed God very clearly that he cared more about the tree and his own comfort than he cared about 120,000 men, women, children, and animals. They probably weren't in the count, but there were animals too. Jonah 4:10 to 11 says, then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Jonah didn't like the Ninevites from the beginning. He had prejudged them to death. But God, being a God of love and mercy, wanted to give them a chance to live and to prosper. Kind of reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, the older son, remember him? Remember his attitude toward his father for loving and embracing the younger son who had lived a reckless life? There are several other parables where someone who doesn't quite deserve it in the end gets something good from God, and it forces us to have to think, uh, what's he trying to tell us about this? What's God really saying to us about his generosity, his mercy, his love, and his kindness? And then in turn, what should we do about that? Prejudice is an ugly thing. The word we don't even like to use, prejudging. But we all have reasons inside ourselves to justify not extending compassion or mercy to people in our lives because of their nationality, how they dress, where they work, how they smell, what's their religion, what's their race, maybe their accent, hard to understand on the phone, maybe their age, too young to know anything or too old to be uh, valid anymore. Where they went to school, go Hoosiers. <laughs> we have two sons, a Hoosier and a, um, a Purdue grad. Guess who's making more money? <laughs> what sports teams you cheer on? We used to be, uh, I grew up in Ohio and was kind of a Buckeye fan until I watched the way that the Buckeye fans acted in our stadium right here. And now I'm a 100% Hoosier. No prejudice there. <laughs> what church someone attends, are they 
Methodist, Lutheran, maybe Catholic even. Maybe their police record, the family name, maybe their gender, where they shop, or maybe even their political leanings. Or maybe even more personal, maybe someone has done you wrong. Someone has mistreated you, and it's really hard for you to look past that and extend grace and mercy and love to them. Or maybe your family has taught you that some people are worthy of being the butt of your jokes or that their neighborhoods you shouldn't go in because you can't trust those people. Prejudice is like an onion. There are lots of layers, and you turn, pull off one, and there's going to be another one, and another one, and another one. But part of what God wants us to do, I believe, through this story is to root out as much of that as we can through his grace to love people as God loves us. Gail and I have lived in four different countries and learned language and felt like, you know, the dogs and cats knew more than we did. Um, I've worked in over 50 with people, 50 countries with people who were way different than me. And I went in with preconceived notions about what it was going to be like. And I was wrong in almost every case. I didn't even know how I thought about these people until I was there and went, hey, they're not like that at all. Um, so when I extend grace, love, respect, 98% of the time, that's what I get back. And I'm glad for that experience. On a side note, quick one, we have a good friend from Iraq. He's from the Kurdish region of Iraq, which is in the north. His name is Rawan Darwish. Um, he came here as a Fulbright scholar to study at IU with the first wave of Iraqis that came through here. And uh, came, he fell in love with Sherwood Oaks. We got to know him very well. He came a couple weeks ago with a special request for Sherwood Oaks Church from the Minister of Religious Affairs in Kurdistan, saying that because of the ISIS problem, they have over a million point eight internally displaced people. They're different than refugees, people who are from Iraq, who are living in their region. That means 30% more food, housing, waste, everything in their region only. They asked us if we would support and help to provide for 125,000 Christian families that are among that group. We talked about immigration, about getting them here. And he said, no, no, we want the Christian fiber to stay in our region. They're important to us. But you can join us in partnership in helping to buy generators and quonsets for education and coolers and um, medications. We want to launch a campaign between here and the end of the year to give us opportunity to help those people. When I told Tom about this, he said, you know, it gave me goosebumps when I heard where they're living. They're living in the plains of Nineveh. And we have an opportunity to help them. We'll let you know more about that. Back to Jonah's heart. The real point of the book is that he was reluctant to go to Nineveh and disobeyed God, but more importantly, his heart was sick. He had a prejudice against the Ninevites 
as unworthy of God's favor. He didn't have any compassion or love for them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wrote, you've been taught to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you this, love your enemies, pray for those who torment you and persecute you. In so doing, you will become children of your Father in heaven. He, after all, loves each of us, good and evil, kind and cruel. He caused the sun to rise and the sun to shine on the evil and the good alike. He causes the rain to water the fields of the righteous and the fields of the sinner. But you are called to something higher. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'd like to end with a quote and a prayer. The quote is from VeggieTales, um, the last song. I liked it so much. Jonah was a prophet, but he really never got it. And if you watch him, you can spot it. He did not get the point. Now, during your life, you probably won't ride on a camel or wake up inside of a large aquatic mammal. But all the sake, like Jonah, there is something you can do. Everyone deserves to get a second chance from you. Compassion and mercy from me to you and you to me. That's exactly what God wants to see. And yes, that is the point. Um, I, there's a little too much Jonah in me. And I need to regularly ask God to help me find it and turn it back over to him. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Uh, kind of an open prayer. I'll pray and you can do with that as you wish in your own heart. Let's pray together. Lord, please help me to see the Nineveh in my life. Help me to identify and root out any prejudice or anger toward others that lives in my heart. Help me to learn to love my enemies and pray for them to turn to you and to prosper. Lord, help me to love beyond my own comfort and my own preferences. Help me to extend grace beyond my sense of justice. Help me to rejoice when an undeserving soul finds pardon and completion in Jesus. Please fill my heart with compassion to see everyone through your eyes. Help me to love others as you love me. Help me to ask, what does love require of me here and now? And thank you, Jesus, for being our prime example when you said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.